There was no light in the coffin, and not much more air. Clarence writhed in the tight, confined space as he surfaced suddenly into a horrible consciousness. At once, he pulled his laden arms from his sides and onto his chest and began pressing against the lid of the coffin with the palms of his hands, becoming more frantic with each faltering push. His own jagged, raspy breath was the only sound Clarence could hear over the cracking of the fingernails as they broke into the overhead enclosure of the buried prison. Splinters of pine fell into his parched mouth and forehead, threatening to slip into his eyes. Searing pain bit into him as his fingertips shredded against the wood, with the streams of blood running over his hands and onto his face. Despite the total blackness of the coffin, Clarence sensed his vision was clouding with each halting, panicked breath. How much time did he have left? There were muffled noises above him, the garbled innotation of man speaking and then a commotion of vigorous, hurried digging. Clarence paused and lay still, trying to preserve his last remaining breaths. As he drifted into unconsciousness, a shovel head broke through the wooden coffin lid, and a flood of humid, tropical air rushed over him. The window of his fourth floor hotel room was unlatched and open, offering Clarence a late night view of the city and its port. At once he sprang up in bed, crying out. Nothing. There was nothing. It had just been a dream. He exhaled, perched on the edge of the mattress, and sucked in a deep, deliberate breath. The sheets were damp with sweat, the night's moist air hanging over him. The nightmare had returned, and so soon after, the last one. Each time, Clarence dreamed of being buried alive and then dug up by some unknown interlopers. Yet it was the immediacy of this most recent burial ordeal that surprised him. His passenger ship had docked on the island only this past morning, and this frightful vision of vivisculture had invaded his dreams the very same night. The reoccurring nightmare had been with Clarence since he'd first landed on this ill-fated island several years prior, but tonight's episode had been the most vivid yet. He always got a sense that the burial was occurring somewhere on the island itself, but so little could be grasped from the dream. There was a dark coffin, his terror at being buried alive, and the men breaking in with a shovel just before he woke. Clarence poured tepid water from the pitcher on the worn table across from his bed. He refilled the pitcher and washed his stubbled face before drying himself with a rough cloth. The ceramic toilet set and the ornately carved table had seen better days, but still retained some of their original colonial elegance. Few visitors came to the island, but those who did most often sought their fortunes, even at the risk of their lives. The early morning bustle on the streets outside the hotel stirred Clarence from the shallow, fitful sleep he'd found after waking from the nightmare. He was to meet a man at Café La Plantation to discuss the shipping of contraband goods off the island. The coastal city on the other side of the calm, Green Blue Sea, was the goods destination. The island was a haven for sellers of illicit cargo possessing little in the way of effective government and even less in the way of law enforcement. The last of the occupying foreign soldiers were leaving the island for good and, in their absence, 
a void of any unifying authority. Clarence stood in front of the oval floor mirror resting on an upright frame near the room's door. He'd not bothered shaving and had dressed in a white summer suit and straw boater hat. He adjusted a silk necktie under his pressed shirt collar. The faint dark circles under his eyes portrayed Clarence's sleeplessness, but he hoped Junior wouldn't notice. He and Junior had done business on several occasions, and it was Clarence's heartfelt wish that this would be the last time he would make the journey to the island. The handful of runs Junior had conducted with Clarence had always been from the eastern part of the island, which was a separate, autonomous nation unto itself. If the pending deal with Junior was closed, it would set Clarence up in relative comfort, and he would abandon the smuggling life for some less risky line of work. Amira's glass was very polished in sharp contrast to the otherwise dingy hotel room. This shovel mirror might have been lifted at some point from one of the other ruined plantations in the island's interior. Giving himself one final glance over, Clarence reached out to touch the glass. His reflection distorted as the mirror began to tilt upright. He looked down as it pivoted towards him and he saw his reflection. Now a mass of liquescent flesh, tumorous and superating, crawling with turgid maggots. Clarence grasped the border of the mirror and held onto it tightly, staring into the silvery glass. The horror was gone, his face's reflection was finally wrinkled and weathered but hale, as it had been only a moment before. Chill came over Clarence as he thought on the repulsive visage. Nerves, that's all it was. Clarence heard himself. Bad dreams are chasing me even into daytime. Shot of a mooth at Café La Plantation will do me good. The street outside the hotel was filled with vendors, men pushing produce carts, and women carrying baskets on their heads. The scent of ripe fruit mixed with the foul air of the city washed over Clarence as he stepped out, the fetid aroma accentuated by the humid climate. Café La Plantation was but a few city blocks over from the hotel. In dollars, not Francis, like you asked. Clarence placed the dull brown paper envelope on the cafe table and grabbed a peeling wooden chair from nearby, seating himself across from Junior. And good day to you as well, Clarence. Where are your manners? Junior said in a heavily accented English. He smiled broadly quickly reaching across the table and stuffing the envelope into his pants pocket, glancing around the cafe as he did so. Clarence replied, Bonjour, Monsieur Junior. You look well. The molasses trade must have been good to you as late, especially now prohibition is done. Junior wrinkled his forehead and leaned into the table. Monsieur Clarence, I have to say I'm surprised to see you back. Maybe the money was just too good to pass up, no? Clarence recalled his first meeting with Junior and the dangerous runs that they had completed together. Moving alcohol and sugarcane molasses to the mainland at great risk to their safety and the lives of their crew. Junior had guts, but Clarence had never fully learned to trust him, and now was no exception. Junior had been born and raised on the island, but had learned English from... Your army men and the missionary school teacher. He was a young man, vigorous and self-assured, but always cloaked in uncertainty. 
Junior was a wild card, even among the tumultuous environs of the island. Clarence did not even know Junior's given name, as he had never revealed it. Clarence looked directly at Junior. Like you, I'm getting squeezed by the new laws of the booze. What would someone buy from us when it's now legal and on the shelves again? But we could still undercut the competition on molasses. No tariffs, no taxes, so larger prices for our customers. This is a buy I can't pass up. A waiter came to their table and Clarence ordered a shot of vermouth. Junior waited for the waiter to leave before leaning back in his seat and grinning. Well, we'll meet tonight at the docks not far from here and take out an old tugboat up the coast. The loading place is up the jungle spot I've used before when no one will look for us. The streets will be empty. This is the first night of the Feast of Souls. Everyone will be inside their homes or at the cemetery so you don't have to worry about being followed. The whole cargo will be placed on your seaworthy ship and from there, you can take it back home. Your crew will be on the ship more so, Clarence. Clarence nodded, trying to keep his face unreadable. They were paid in part before I left and will be there. Just a skeleton crew, after all. We want to involve as a few men as possible. I'm much more careful now than I was in the past. Your people will supply the labor to load the goods, I take it. Junior's face twitched, but before he could speak, the waiter returned. He took a crystal shot glass from his tray and placed it in front of Clarence before turning and departing. Yes, Monsieur Clarence, Junior said, his composure restored. You don't worry about that. Our men will never breathe a word, I promise you. See you at nine o'clock. Clarence walked back to his hotel, feeling a bit lighter now that the first part of his last trip was done. A taste of vermouth lingered in his mouth and now he needed some breakfast. The hotel had a small dining room where he could get a plate of eggs with plantains. Light morning and afternoon would provide the time for Clarence to read the sales papers he had brought with him and plot out what would happen to his sizable shipment once he was back in port. The morning and afternoon passed quickly. Clarence spent the time working at the table in his room and had lunch brought up to him from the hotel kitchen. Papers were spread over the makeshift desk, with his open leather journal displaying the figures he had calculated and jotted down. Junior had received the advance payment, and the rest would be paid to the smuggling crew's captain once Clarence took possession of his cargo. He finished what was left of his lunch for supper and then pressed to go down to the docks to meet Junior. The late autumn sun was beginning to set over the horizon and rosy fleeced light spilled in through the open window of his hotel room. Clarence sat down on his bed and looked out over the city and to the sea beyond it, knowing it would soon be dark. The streets would be deserted, just as Junior had said. Tonight was the first night of the festival. Will you be back soon, Mercy? The woman at the hotel front desk had said to Clarence, walking by her station. Tonight's not a good night to be out on those streets, especially for a Yankee. Why don't you just get some sleep instead? Clarence could see the young woman was genuinely concerned, so he stopped and shot her a reassuring smile. Oh, a friend of mine told me that there's a festival tonight, a feast for the dead. I had heard about it during my other visits, but I was never here when the festival took place. People were always reluctant to speak on what went on. I'm eager to see what all the fuss is about. 
From there, the streets outside appeared pitch black, with no signs of lights from other buildings or passerby. The weather had cooled, a balmy breeze wafting through the hotel's yellow-painted double doors and over Clarence and the young woman. She leaned forward from the check-in counter, her long, curly, reddish hair loose, spilling down over her heavily freckled face. Her expression was now quite anxious. You are right, merci. It is the fair goal, the night when the world of the dead and the world of the living are closest. During the day, the people were in the streets, but now they are seeing their families who have passed on. But who knows who is out there? I tell you, it's not safe. Restless spirits. Clarence was just about able to hide his amusement. I'm just meeting someone. I'll stick to the main thoroughfare as a precaution. My thanks to you for your concern. I appreciate it. Despairing, the woman breathed in a hoarse whisper. It's the Cote del Mertes, merci. Oh, then diable ah. The devil's garden. Stay away from the graveyards this night and the next. No matter who invites you there, I will pray that Le Serene keeps you. Clarence gave her a final confused smile before turning and sauntering out into the empty street of the hotel district. The woman watched him go, her sad eyes boring him into him until, at last, the darkness swallowed him. The hard-packed dirt streets of the city were ill-maintained but an extensive tram system ran through the downtown area and its adjacent districts, which belied the abject poverty of the capital and of the island itself. The public trams had ceased running several hours ago, and Clarence proceeded on foot to his appointment with Junior. Single lights, probably candles, flickered in the open windows of tenant homes, but otherwise the streets were sheltered in darkness, the moon was only a waning crescent, but provided most of the remaining illumination from its perch in the cloudy night sky. In the distance, Clarence spied a long procession of lights advancing in a single file out of the city, but he was too far away to make out any more than that. Turning a street corner, Clarence was nearing his destination. The waterfront had recently undergone new construction, and a concrete wharf had been added which extended ahead of the antiquated wooden docks built during the city's foundation. As he paused in front of the dilapidated shipwright's warehouse near the open avenue, a shadow cast itself over him, seemingly from nowhere. Clarence looked ahead and saw nothing. The street was quiet and empty. He took out a pack of Goya Blue from his coat from the pocket and lit one with his silver lighter, taking a long drag before continuing on. Only moments later, he paused again, a shadow casting itself into his path, this time from behind. It was larger now, and it had a shape, the shape of a man. Clarence turned and again saw nothing. Did someone know about his meeting with Junior? Perhaps a rival smuggler? Clarence never carried a weapon. He'd always feared arrest more than robbers. But now, and not for the first time... He regretted being without a gun. Spinning back around, he hurried on, pulling his jacket tight around him despite the warm evening. The nighttime sea stretched out to his right, its cresting waves glimmering in the faint moonlight and he traced a route along the edge of the water by the docks. 
The docks were destitute, a cluster of ships parked in the city's harbor without occupants. If someone was planning on attempting to waylay him, he would have to make a run for the hotel, which was now blocks away. There was someone in the distance. A figure stood near the tugboat moored to the dock, the features not yet visible in the dim light. The boat bobbled slightly in the warm sea wind, and Clarence hurried his step. An enormous shadow spread itself across his path as he moved. The outline of the figure's top hat and long-sleeved coat were now clear. Clarence rose and stared at the animated silhouette, which abruptly gestured to him, tipping its hat and then waving a hand in a gesture of farewell. The shadow reached behind a stack of shipping crates and barrels, slowly retreating from Clarence's view. When he looked up, he found Junior walking toward him. Monsieur Clarence, what's that expression on your face? You see a dead papa or something? Junior's smirk was obvious even in the low light. I... I just saw a man. I think he was following me. Clarence felt uneasy, steadying himself as he tossed his spent cigarette butt into the gently churning waves splashing up against the mooring pools. There's no man, Clarence. No one is here. Just us and the souls of the dead who roamed this night. Let's get on the boat. The crew is waiting. Clarence quickly scanned the docks before following Junior down the boarding ramp and onto the tugboat. The boat's captain was behind the tug's helm, but none of the other crew members were showing themselves. Junior unmoored the tug from the docks, throwing the length of the rope back onto the ramp as the captain nodded and started the boat engine. The engine sputtered and convulsed for a moment before chugging along at an even pace. At last, the tugboat drifted away from the dock and out onto the sea, gaining speeds as the harbor grew smaller. Once they were past the city's limits, they made a hard turn towards the shore. The tugboat parted the murky water, white-capped frothing waves breaking from its port and starboard sides. The tug's destination was a remote and mostly uncharted jungle clearing near the island's sparsely populated interior. The night sky had become clear, and Clarence stood at the tugboat's bow, gazing up into the starry canopy above him, nearly lost in thought. He heard Junior say something to the captain from the bridge behind him, but the chugging of the tug's engine drowned out the words. There are no excuses. You men are just lazy rats. The four crew members stared up at Clarence solely as he berated them. We are behind schedule now because of this. Clarence stood in front of the men as the sun began to set over the sea behind him, looking down at them from the chartered merchant ship main hatch. Clarence had hired the ship and its crew to transport this run of illicit goods from the island, but the ship's captain wasn't entirely clear on the nature of the cargo. Normally a very silent man, the ship's first mate spoke up. We only did as you asked us. You were wrong about how long loading the ship would take. There was more cargo than what was written on the ship's ledger. The first mate was an experienced seaman, taciturn, rough, and haggard, but was articulate in his own way. Clarence sighed, his anger dissipating. I went by what was the supplier's estimate. Now let's get this finished and be on our way. I'm losing money as we bicker over this mess. Clarence stepped down and walked away, ignoring the glare the first mate had given him as he descended the ship's stairs to his quarters below deck. 
This was not the first time Clarence had spoken harshly to the crew. He and the captain had maintained a working relationship that had lasted several years. Clarence had cultivated a reputation for callousness, even cruelty among the captain's sailors, and the men had quickly grown to resent him. This commercial ship had run most of his biggest jobs from the island during Prohibition. The chartered ship would leave port that evening on a voyage due to the last almost a week. The trip would end with a late night, docking in the waters outside the discharge port. The cargo would then be transported to shore on smaller, more nimble vessels so the goods could evade customs. Clarence wasn't sure if the ship's crew knew the value of the cargo that they were carrying, but the ship's captain was a long-time retainer, and Clarence believed he could be trusted. There was a knock on the cabin door. Clarence, may I have a word with you? It was the gruff voice of the ship's captain. Please come in. Clarence replied without rising from his desk. The door opened and the captain entered, his bearded face shadowy in the low light of the backlight desk. The men are becoming angry and frustrated, the captain announced. First mate Dorman came to me and said that they are being overworked, that you are pushing them too hard to make an impossible schedule. The captain was an older man who had spent many years at sea and often left Clarence to supervise the crew while they loaded and unloaded his goods. Not true at all, Captain Hancock, was Clarence's measured response. It is the men's fault that we are behind as they did not follow the schedule. If we're late to the offshore meetup point, the handlers won't be there with the boats. No boats. No way to get the cargo to shore. We'd have to turn around and go back out to sea. Captain Hancock stepped back and seemed to be weighing something up in his head. Clarence knew he was a valuable client and that the captain knew a serious disagreement with him might be very well lead to his business being taken elsewhere. I'll see what I can do with the men. You're right. We can't miss that drop-off point or it'll cost us all. The captain tipped his peak cap to Clarence and then slowly closed the cabin door. The muffled sound of the captain's footsteps echoed from the stairwell and then, for a few moments, from the deck above. Clarence sat and stared at the closed doors as the footsteps faded, returning to the task at hand only once they were gone. With his bookkeeping ledgers open in front of him, Clarence noted with satisfaction that his shipment of rum, molasses, and spices would be his most lucrative yet. The final sale of these goods would elevate Clarence's smuggling business into a new class of operation. He would no longer need to retain Captain Hancock with his aging watercraft and surly crew. He would be able to afford a ship of his own and his own men. Clarence wondered with some amusement whether Captain Hancock's crew were tempted to mutiny, given how large of a sum of money was involved in this transaction. Did Hancock's men understand the full worth? of what was being shipped. The sound of footsteps and a hurried knock abruptly broke Clarence's stream of thought. A voice spoke from the other side of the cabin door. We are docking to refuel, Mr. Morris. Please come back above deck in 15 minutes. Clarence stood and rushed to open the door. A young man, a member of the crew, stood in front of him. 15 minutes, sir. We need to stop before going back out to sea. Clarence gripped the edge of the open door in frustration. He sputtered angrily. There was no schedule stop. Who approved this? The crewman replied. First mate Dorman, sir. We didn't have time to refuel due to all hands at the loading dock, so we are stopping now. 
slamming the door without a word, Clarence returned to his desk. He gathered his business papers and put them into the desktop drawer, locking the drawer with the small key he kept on the chain around his neck. Clarence glanced at his reflection in the cabin's framed wall mirror and placed a straw boater hat on his head. As he turned his back on the mirror to leave, a calignous shape, darkling and nebulous, began to form within the mirror's surface. The ship had made slow progress along the island's coast and was now far from a port of any size. Clarence stood on the upper deck and gazed out at the sea, its waves sparkling in the bright moonlight of the evening. Their modestly-sized ship was heading towards a set of wooden piers, exhausted smoke trailing from the twin funnels. The piers protruded into the shallow waters of the jungle shoreline. Standing atop them were several men who appeared to be waiting for them. The ship docked and the men began moving barrels from the adjacent pier to the ship, fueling for the oil-fired steam boilers. Clarence saw that Captain Hancock and First Mate Dorman were already on shore, moving between tents pitched in the clearing and speaking with some of the local men. Clarence walked up to the two makeshift planks connected to the ship to the pier and sought out the clumps of tents nestled at the fore of the jungle's tangled undergrowth. Come sit with us, Clarence. Ahmad here is going to share some of his spiced rum. Captain Hancock was in a jovial mood. He seemed a different man to the old captain who had questioned Clarence earlier. Clarence seated himself on one of the folding canvas chairs in front of the camp's main tent, between the captain and the first mate. The captain placed a coarse hand on Clarence's shoulder, reassuring him. Our ship should be ready within the hour. You can get some rest after a nightcap. Here. Drink up. The young man Captain Hancock had introduced as Armand had in Clarence a drink and a glass tumbler. Thanks, offered Clarence as he took his first shallow sip from the green enamel tumbler. Strong stuff. The spice was almost cloying to Clarence's palate. Clarence studied the campsite before they opened fire, the only source of light nearby besides the oil lamps that hung from posts doubting the camp. Some of the laborers were standing nearby, restless and shifty. Clarence took another drink from the tumbler, noting Captain Hancock was holding an empty glass. First may what, Mr. Morse, you seem sleepy. Why don't you finish your rum and then head to the ship? We'll be embarking soon. First mate Dorman hovered near Clarence's chair. His voice was acerbic, almost mocking in tone. His time-worn features hollowed in the light of the flickering flames. Clarence put the tumbler to his lips, but it fell from his hand. The remaining rum spilled out over his clothes. He tried to stand, but felt dizzy, dropping back onto the flimsy chair behind him. Slowly, he slid onto the sandy ground. He felt hands take hold of his deadened limbs, lifting him up. But what happened next? Clarence looked away from the tugboat's bow and up to the late night sky again, as if waking from a trance. Junior called to him. Monsieur Clarence, the captain wished to have a word with you. The times that followed that night of the camp had not been good ones. Clarence never recovered his cargo, which set him back years financially. His succeeding memory was of wandering along a deserted beach in the early morning his mouth and skin parched, his white suit soiled and torn. 
Clarence had found his way from the beach to a small town several miles away and hitched a ride on a cart back to the city. Days had passed unaccounted for. Accepting a loan from a business associate, Clarence purchased a ticket on a steamer heading home. He never saw Captain Hancock or his crew again. The isolated cove consisted of a natural clearing in the jungle, a white sandy beach, and a single but sturdy pier lit by hanging lanterns extended out into the littorial waters. The tugboat docked, and Junior roped it securely to its moorings. Clarence stepped back from the creaky deck onto the pier from a raised plank and peered around. The sandy beach was empty, but a trail led off into the jungle from which flickering lights were visible. Clarence hadn't seen anyone else on the tugboats besides Junior and the tug's captain. Also, where were his hired ship and its crew? Turning, Clarence saw Junior disappearing down the trail and into the jungle. The outline of his moving form was barely visible against the shelter of the trees, ferns, and tall hardwoods lining the pathway. Clarence stepped out onto the stretch of fine sand in front of him, crossing the threshold from the shore to the jungle clearing, and then stepping out onto the trail, following Junior. The tropical forest around him was very active, humming with the ambient nighttime sounds of insect life. Clarence stopped to remove his boater hat and wipe the accumulated sweat from his bow. Clarence stopped to remove his boater hat and wipe the accumulated sweat from his brow. Where was Junior? He could no longer see him up ahead. He emerged onto another clearing surrounded by jungle light, only by a small bonfire in its center. As Clarence approached, erratic shadows danced in the grass, and large exaggerated shapes loomed amongst the trees. Clarence saw a line of ragged men lifting crates and barrels onto a series of rolling flatbed carts, the carts having been perhaps retrieved from some derelict railway station. The men's actions were stiff and awkward, their steps mechanical and halting. As Clarence drew closer, he could see all of them were very gaunt, with sunken eyes and ashen complexions. There was a rustling noise from among the ferns close to the trail. From behind Clarence, another of the gaunt men trode out from the jungle, his pallid face impassive and unblinking. Without noticing Clarence, he shambled past him across the clearing and took up the trail's path, which continued at the clearing's far side. The macabre figure was carrying something. It laid across his outstretched arms. Clarence watched the gaunt man for a brief time before following at a distance behind him. Maybe, he reasoned. The man would lead him to Junior. The trail snaked through the dense jungle, leading up a shallow hill and then back down again to the jungle floor. Upon descending, Clarence saw the crumbling edifice of a once stately plantation, its former palatable splendor evident even now. The gaunt man made his way up the vine-strewn steps of the plantation's columnated exterior and then through its partially open doors, vanishing from view. Clarence paused at the base of the hill and examined the grand building. The broken windows of both floors showed no light within. Only the muted illumination of the crescent moon through the jungle's canopy revealed any details of the abandoned dwelling. Clarence hurried across the half-buried cobblestone path to the wide double doors. He pushed inside and paused at the foot of a belighted imperial staircase. 
Clarence could see the plantation house had indeed been a grand chateau for its master. Gilded portraits hung on every wall, and a ballroom adjacent to the foyer stretched off into the shadows. Clarence listened for the sound of footsteps, but none could be heard. He eased past the cracked Rococo doors of the ballroom. In its center stood a strange thing. A large shovel mirror, very similar to the one in his hotel room, but much heavier and of more elaborate design. Resting above the mirror were many fetishes and unlit votive candles, black and sickly in color. The mirror was both repulsive and attractive at once, and Clarence was drawn to it. There you are, Monsieur Clarence. We've been waiting for you. Clarence turned sharply to see Junior stepping out of the shadows of the ballroom's interior. His face was painted chalky white, with thick black lines framing his eyes and mouth. The votive candles surrounding the mirror flared and began burning brightly, revealing the other men who had formed a wide ring around Clarence. The men's faces were painted in the same ritual fashion as Junior's, the makeup resembling a kind of death mask. They stood silently, as if waiting for someone's arrival. Distant drums began to beat somewhere outside, the rhythm swelling and rising. Clarence eyed the men assembling before him, licking his lips and trying to count them. Fifteen, maybe, or more. At once, he bolted, barreling past Junior, but two men, God, they were fast, seized him by the arms and dragged him back. They threw him down before the mirror, in which a shape as black as Funeral Powell was now forming. Looking away, Clarence shut his eyes and clasped his ears to shield them from the manic cadence of the rising drums. The sound grew louder, filling the space of the gutted ballroom. Clarence gasped, sweat beating on his skin. His head jerked in a panicked spasm toward the mirror as an enormous shadow cast itself between him and this portal to the world of the dead. Junior spoke in a clear, powerful voice. Papa, call you back from across the sea, Clarence. This is why you were having those dreams. Your men betrayed you, gave you to Papa to make into one of his servants. You came to your senses once you were pulled out of the ground and got away. No one's ever done that before. I'll give you that. But now you are here. And Papa will collect what is his on this night. The night when the world of the dead and the world of the living are closest. Clarence panted and gulped, his terror tightening in his throat. Then, finding the strength to speak, he shouted above the din of the drums. What is this? What a mine is Papa's? Junior smirked and then nodded towards the mirror. Why, your soul, Monsieur Clarence? Papa wants your soul. A pair of massive arms reached out of the mirror, striggin as the night, and seized Clarence around the waist. Clarence let out a scream, his sound nearly drowned out by the wild thrashing drums. His body pulled into the mercury surface of the mirror. He seemed to melt away piece by piece until only a single, strained hand remained, clawing at nothing. Soon, that too disappeared into the netherworld of the mirror. Far-off cries echoed from somewhere, 
and at once, the beating drums fell silent. Junior stepped toward the now-dormant mirror, touching his fingers to the glass. The gaunt men labored near the spent bonfire, having worked throughout the night. Their task was almost done, and rays of morning sunlight were scattered throughout the giant fronds of the tree ferns sheltering the jungle clearing. The cargo was assembled, loaded onto the flatbed carts. It was almost ready to be pushed across the long trail of wooden planks set back to the beach. A newly arrived commercial steamer was docked at the pier. Junior stood at the plank's end, where the sandy beach met the pier. He lit a galusius taken from the packet in his pocket and adjusted the straw boater hat on his head. The steamer's captain walked up the ramp from the ship and raised an arm in greeting. Good morning, the captain called out. What a night that was. We were well ahead of schedule when a terrible storm came out of nowhere. The captain was young but was not a novice seaman. He and his crew had been badly shaken by a ferocious tempest which had beset them the previous night, the likes of which they had never seen before. Junior flashed a grin. Strange. We waited for you, but you never came. The sea was peaceful at these shores, like the way I slept at night. He ambled his way across the planks to join the captain on the pier. The captain eyed Junior as he approached, frowning slightly. Even our radio signal was jammed. The water to those ports are usually so calm, like you said. But we were tossed on the waves for hours. I was sure we were done for when the storm just rolled back. Almost as quickly as it had come. Exactly at midnight. Removing his seaman's cap for a moment, the captain wiped his brow with a cloth he kept in his trouser pockets. The heat from the island morning sun already bearing down on him. Junior held his lit cigarette between his two fingers and offered the captain one, which the man accepted. Mr. Morris had to leave early this morning, Junior said. Business matters that couldn't wait another day. We'll load the steamer hold with his cargo, and you can be on your way. The captain nodded, took a shaky puff from the Galosius, and, without a word, turned to walk back down the ramp to the deck of his ship. Junior strolled along the planks to the hidden clearing in the jungle and found his older brother, Armand, at work. Armand was herding the ghastly trope of laborers back into the plantation house where the streamer's crew wouldn't see them. He and Junior would then push the full carts to the pier and help the crew unload the cargo. Hey, Benison, where you get that block from? Armand gestured toward one of the gaunt men shuffling near the end of the line. The man had the same weathered countenance and vacant, staring eyes as the others, but he seemed to be out of place amongst the workers. His skin was particularly pale, and he wore a tattered white suit coat which had once clearly been a piece of fine clothing. Junior replied, Oh, just someone who owed Papa a debt. He then grinned devilishly. A debt which is now been repaid.